Welcome to the Active Listening Podcast. Today's episode on church and climate, I have the pleasure of interviewing one of the world's leading climate scientists, Catherine Hayhoe. She has a wealth of knowledge on the topic and cares very deeply about helping others to see the truth about climate change. She is a mom and wife, a professor at Texas Tech University, has written a book and countless articles, and gives public talks regularly. She doesn't mince words, but is still gracious and skilled in her ability to communicate her message. She is very passionate, and I look forward to sharing her thoughts with you. Let's begin. Welcome to the podcast. Today we get to interview Catherine Hayhoe, and it's a pleasure to have her today. She's a topic of much discussion in our home because of what she does with climate, and she is a climate scientist. But Catherine, welcome, and can you tell us what it means to be a climate scientist? Sure. So my background is originally in physics and then atmospheric science. And what I do is I specifically study what climate change means to us in the places where we live. So often we think that climate change only matters to future generations or maybe to polar bears or people who live far away. But in reality, right here today, no matter where we live in Canada or the U.S. or around the world, we are seeing the impacts and they are affecting us personally. They're affecting the quality of the air we breathe in some places. They're affecting the quality of the water we drink in others. They're affecting the economy. They're affecting even national security. They're affecting our food and our water. They're affecting so many aspects of our life. And we need to understand what's happening. We also need to understand what we can do to fix it. Right. Especially when it involves so much that has to do with us on a day-to-day basis, right? Yes, exactly. So what first got you interested in climate science? Well, I grew up with a science teacher dad. In fact, my dad was originally a science teacher and then the science coordinator for the Toronto Board of Ed. So I I grew up with the idea that, you know, science was just the coolest thing that you could possibly study, of course. And one of my first memories, I think I was around four years old, was was going out to the park late at night with my dad and lying, lying on a blanket in the park and him showing me how to find the Andromeda galaxy through binoculars. So the idea that using nothing more than our brains and every, what we can construct on this planet, we can study the outer reaches of the universe is just absolutely stunning to me. And my dad really views the universe as God's art gallery. In fact, he even had back in the day a slideshow where he would go around to different churches and camps and Christian organizations and show people God's art gallery of nebula and galaxies and stars and clusters and things like that. So growing up, um, I figured, hey, why not study astrophysics? That's a really, really cool thing to study. And just recognizing that when we're doing so, we're studying God's creation and we're studying things that God created just for the pure joy and pleasure of looking at that no human eye has ever seen before. Is That's a pretty mind-blowing thought, isn't it? No kidding. Yeah. Wow, you're making me get all excited about this. <laughs> yes, but you may say, okay, but you're not an astrophysicist. What happened? Yeah. Well, What happened was I was almost finished my undergrad degree at U of T when I had to take an extra course before heading to graduate school to finish my degree. And I'd already sort of picked out a few graduate schools for astrophysics. And I was looking around for this extra course. And I saw this new class that was just offered for the first time by a new professor over in the geography department called climate science. So Mm -hmm. I thought to myself, well, that looks interesting because, you know, growing up taking geography class, um, I learned that, you know, deforestation and biodiversity loss and air pollution and climate change are all problems. And I felt like those are serious problems and and I hope we fix it. And I know environmentalists are working on these problems. I'm not really an environmentalist myself, but I wish them well. And I hope that we do fix these. That was sort of my perspective. But then I took this class and I was absolutely stunned to find out First of all, that climate science was all physics, the very same physics I've been learning in astrophysics. I don't know what I thought it was, but that's what it is. Um, but, But even more importantly, I realized that climate change is, to coin a phrase actually from the U.S. military, Uh, climate change is a threat multiplier. In other words, it takes all of the issues that we're concerned about today and it multiplies or exacerbates them. And dear to my own heart is the fact that it takes humanitarian issues like poverty and hunger and inequity and injustice and lack of access to clean water and the spread of diseases that nobody should be dying from in 2019. It takes these things and it exacerbates them. It makes them worse. 
So growing up as a missionary kid in South America, when I was nine years old, my parents packed up the family and we moved down to South America and we lived there off and on for a number of years um, from then through the end of high school. Um, growing up as a missionary kid, I knew how vulnerable people are in poor countries. And the fact that when you have a disaster, a famine, a flood, a landslide, the, the casualties are not just a handful of people. You're looking at tens of thousands of people who, who are harmed or killed by these events. And you're looking at hundreds of thousands of people whose lives are impacted by these events. So my heart really told me, you know, given that you have the very skills needed to study this urgent global problem, how can you not? And that was what led me to switch the direction of my career and study climate science, not because of the polar bear and not because of future generations, but because it affects real people today, especially the poorest and most vulnerable people right here in Canada, as well as around the world. And those are the very people who I believe we are told to love and care for. Wow, that is amazing. And you sound like you are definitely passionate about this, which gets me excited and makes me want to do something. So that's amazing. You mentioned in an article that you and your husband didn't totally see eye to eye on climate change. So how did you balance that and communicate about climate change so that you could be on the same page about it? So growing up in Canada, especially with a science teacher dad, I sort of felt, you know, the sky is blue, the grass is green, and climate is changing due to human activities. That was just what I learned. Um, I had never met anybody who didn't think it was real. And really, in Canada back then, back in the 90s, there weren't a lot of people who were talking about how it wasn't real. It wasn't really part of the dialogue. It wasn't part of our politics um, in Alberta and in Ontario and at the national level. So it wasn't until I moved to the States that I started to meet people who thought that way, which is very surprising to me. Um, and then um, in graduate university, um, which was the student group that I met my husband at when I was going to graduate school at the University of Illinois to study climate science, um, I met my husband and he comes from the South. Um, he grew up going to a fairly conservative evangelical church that was not only theologically conservative, it was, as so many are in the U.S., politically conservative also because in the U.S. there's a very strong identification between the word evangelical and the word Republican, to the point where, frankly, a lot of people in the U.S. who call themselves evangelical, their statement of faith is written first by the Republican Party and yeah. only a very distant second by the Bible. And if the two come into conflict, they will go with their political ideology over the Bible. So in a sense, they're, they're, they're a very different denomination of Christians. I would call them political Christians rather than, yeah. you know, theological Christians. Right. And you might debate if they're Christians at all, but I will leave that debate up to God. Uh, but, But... Um, so my husband growing up um, had never met anyone who, who shared his faith, who thought that climate change was real. And, you know, theologically, we were very much aligned. We were pretty much in agreement on, on almost anything that we thought. And so it never occurred to him to ask me what I thought of climate change. It never occurred to me to ask him because you wouldn't ask somebody, do you think the grass is green? Right. You just wouldn't. Yeah. Um, and so it wasn't until we were married that penny dropped and we figured out that we were on the opposite sides of the spectrum on a couple of different issues. Um, you know, I had been in astrophysics and so we're on the different side of the spectrum in terms of what we saw as the age of the universe. And we're also on the different side of the spectrum in terms of whether climate was changing and humans are responsible. So this is the first time that I had actually had a genuine conversation with somebody who thought this. But we were starting off from a very different place than most of those conversations start because First of all, we loved each other, obviously. Um, we were highly motivated to stay married. We wanted to come to a resolution on this issue. But not only that, we respected each other. Mm -hmm. um, I knew that he was a really smart person. He had just finished his PhD in applied linguistics. He was a professor at the University of Notre Dame. Um, I knew that he understood data. He understood you know, research. He understood analysis. And I also knew that he was a person of integrity where um, I had seen him change his mind on things. I had witnessed God working in his life. I had seen um, us work together on things and work things out where I really, truly felt like God was working through both of us to change our attitudes and to, to reconcile us and to bring us closer together and closer to him. So, so starting off from that basis was a very different place than most of our conversations. And because of that, I was able to just be very curious and say, well, you must have good reasons because you're a smart person. You wouldn't just say this for no reason. What are your reasons? 
And so at that time, there weren't a lot of resources out there as there are today. There was none of our global weirding episodes. There wasn't the website called Skeptical Science, which is a fantastic website run by a Christian that answers all of the commonly asked questions about the science of climate change. There was none of those resources available. So, so he would say, well, how do we even know it's warming? So I'd say, okay, well, let's actually find the data. We went to NASA's website together and we downloaded the data and put it on his computer, plotted the data, showed that it's actually going up. And, you know, at that point he was like, well, I have to either decide that NASA, who put men on the moon, are involved in a global cover-up extending all the way back to the 1800s, or they're actually right. It actually is warming. Right. So, you know, that's one inflection point. And then he's like, well, how do you know it's not a natural cycle? I was like, well, that's a good question. I never learned that before. So we had to go investigate natural cycles, figure out what would be happening according to natural cycles. Actually, it turns out it'd be cooling right now, not warming. Um, What about the sun? Well, the sun's energy has actually been going down since the 1970s, not up. What about volcanoes? Well, volcanic emissions of CO2 are a tiny fraction of total human emissions. So we had to go find these answers together and dig through them. And then we kind of progressed to the real issue, which is solutions. And even now, you know, my husband will sometimes come home and be like, all right, this Green New Deal thing, you know, how do you think they're going to fund it? And I'm like, well, (laughs) I'm not an American. I'm not voting on your policies, but I do like the way it supports people who are poor and it actually thinks about them. And so, so we still have these conversations, but we were able to walk through it because we respected each other and we trusted each other. And those are the two key elements of a constructive conversation. So nowadays I have conversations with people on a daily basis on social media and many in person too. But if those conversations begin with a lack of respect, and even if I respond with respect, they continue with a lack of respect. I just end the conversation because that's not going to go anywhere. I know that from experience. But if somebody comes against me, as long as they do so where it's not completely hideously insulting, but it's just, you know, you know, there's no war of Babylon. There's just that, you know, maybe you're wrong. Um, and I respond to them in a respectful way. And if they kind of dial it back down and we're able to engage, then we often can have a constructive conversation. And I, I take that lesson all the way back to those conversations that I first had with my husband, which I was able to have because I knew that God was working in, uh, in me and him in both of us and that, um, together we were able to seek truth. And that really is what it all comes down to. That's great. Get the sense that your Canadian roots still run very deep and that you still care very much about the fact that you are Canadian and speaking to people with politeness and with grace. I hear that a lot in your Twitter comments and responses to people. Um, but my question then is, why is there so much um, negativity directed towards scientists working in the climate change um, sphere? And how do you navigate that? Well, nowadays, and actually really for the past 10 or 15 years, as soon as a climate scientist sticks their head out of the ivory tower, so to speak, as soon as they venture beyond uh, you know, doing scientific research and publishing scientific papers that are published in journals that nobody ever reads except for your <laughs> colleagues. As, as soon as you step even one toe outside that line, you will get shot at. Mm-hmm. Because climate change in the United States has already become the single most politicized issue in the whole country. I'm very sad to say that in Canada, it's not that far behind. And we mm-hmm. see similar trends in Australia, the UK, and um, increasingly Brazil and a few other places as well. And that isn't because people genuinely have a problem with the science. Because the basic science that explains that digging up and burning coal and then later oil and gas produces heat-trapping gases that are wrapping an extra blanket around the planet that we did not need, and that is why the planet is running a fever, that science is so basic that we've understood it since the 1800s. Mm-hmm. And the basic physics of radiative transfer and nonlinear fluid dynamics that we use to understand how human activities affect our planet, it's the exact same physics that, underst- that explains how stoves and fridges and airplanes work. And there aren't a lot of people attacking people who say that stoves work or fridges work. or Right. Yeah. So, so why are they attacking climate scientists? It isn't because they truly have a problem with the science. It's because they have a problem with the solutions. But if we say, sure, it's a real problem. And yes, it's terrible that it's affecting people today, especially the poorest and most vulnerable among us. But I don't want to fix it. 
that makes us a bad person. And as humans, we don't want to be bad people. We want to be good people. And so part of our defense mechanism, and unfortunately for some people, this is actually a conscious defense mechanism. For most people, it's actually subconscious, I would say. Our defense mechanism is to say it isn't real because that makes us kind of the smart person, like, oh, those scientists, they're just pulling the wool over our eyes. They're just creating this problem to line their pockets with government grants. Yeah. You know, don't, don't you know there's natural cycles and it's been warmer before and the sun is the source of all of our energy anyways and a volcanic eruption produces more CO2 than all humans put together, which is absolutely false. All the volcanoes in the world produce the same amount of CO2 as like a single U.S. state like Ohio or Florida every year. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So so it's 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 better to say those because then we seem kind of shrewd and savvy, like we're not being taken advantage of by these, you know, scientists, rather than saying, sure, it's a real problem, but I don't want to fix it because that would make us the bad guy. And so we scientists are kind of like the obvious um, messengers of this news. We are the Jeremiah's. Mm. And if you if you look in the Bible, what happened to Jeremiah? What happened to Hosea? What happened to the prophets? They got both um, metaphorically and physically um, yeah. ass assaulted, um, insulted, ignored, blamed for the fact that they were telling people, hey, we need to turn from our behavior. We need to act differently because otherwise bad things are coming if we don't change the way that we're acting today. So really, there's a long history um, from, the, from the Bible through modern day showing that people who say, hey, we have to change the way we're doing things, um, there's a lot of resistance, a lot of vitriol, a lot of opposition to that message. Yeah. So then has your faith been affected by all of this or by the science even that you are studying that with, in regards to the climate? I often actually get this question, um, especially from people who aren't Christians who are interviewing me, and they say, well, you know, have you ever felt like you're losing your faith because of the science that you study? And my answer to that is is never, because I grew up with the, the idea, which, you know, it, it may be very revolutionary for some, but if we think about it, for us, it should be very fundamental to who we are as Christians. I grew up with the idea that if, if we truly believe that God created this incredible planet that we live on and this amazing universe that surrounds it, then how could studying God's creation in any way conflict with what God tells us in the Bible if we also believe the same God wrote the Bible? <laughs> yeah. Now, I fully recognize that there are concrete examples where people feel that the Bible and science are in conflict. A lot of that relates to issues of origins and issues of the age of the universe, especially here south of the border. Um, but I believe that, that in those cases, Either we have not fully understood or are misinterpreting or are viewing the Bible or the science, or more likely both, through our specific cultural lens of today. And yeah. sometimes with a little humility and patience, we can actually work it out and reconcile the two. And there's really great organizations, both in Canada and the U.S. and the U.K., um, of scientists who are Christians who have the most amazing discussions on how do you reconcile um, scientific issues like parallel universes with the idea that Christ came to save the world. Yes. Uh, I love going to their meetings in, in the Canada. It's called the Canadian Scientific um, CSCA uh, Christian Affiliation. In the U.S., it's called the American Scientific Affiliation. And in the U.K., it's simply called Christians in Science, which I think is a very simple title. <laughs> um, so so with, with some patience and humility, we can often kind of think these things through. Some of them we might not figure out till we get to heaven. But if we start with the basic premise that the same person did both, God, then how could our faith be in jeopardy by studying one aspect or another of what God created and gave to us? But I have to say that there's another side to this. And um, when I was visiting a university on the West Coast, um, a public university, a couple of years ago, and all of a sudden, in the middle of my schedule, they announced, well, you have to have this meeting with the dean. And that was you know, not previously not on my schedule. I said, okay, well, I don't know the dean, don't recognize his name, uh, but I'm happy to meet with him for half an hour. So they cut the woman in science lunch a little bit short and ushered everybody out of the room and in comes the dean. He sits down, we introduce ourselves. And I'm sort of looking at him, you know, wondering, you know, why, why are we having this meeting? And he leans across the table to me and he says, I used to be an evangelical Christian. Oh, yeah. And I said, really? And he said, yes. He said, I, you know, I grew up in a secular home, but um, in undergrad, I, you know, had some friends who are part of a Christian group. And so I learned about Jesus and I started going to church and I learned about the message of salvation. I became an evangelical Christian. And, and he was using the past tense. And so that obviously begged the question. So I said, well, why are you no longer? Mm -hmm. And that was what he wanted to share with me. He said, 
the reason I'm no longer an evangelical Christian is because I saw no evidence of God working in any other Christians that I saw. Wow. I saw vitriol. I saw hate. I saw selfishness. I saw greed. I saw closed-mindedness. I saw the exact opposite of the fruits of the Spirit in everyone around me. And year after year after year, I became increasingly disillusioned with God's ability or power to transform lives. And that just absolutely broke my heart because as Christians, that is what we believe, that we are being transformed. We, we, we are saved. We are taken out of death and put into life. We are given this new life. But our attitudes and our actions are being continually transformed um, into, into the image of Christ as we progress in our, in our walk with him. And so saying that he saw no evidence of that really struck me hard because the hardest thing I have to deal with is the fact that over well over half of the hate that I get on a daily basis, it is daily now, whether it's on social media, on Facebook or Twitter, once in a while on Instagram. People on Instagram are a bit nicer, but I do get it once in a while there. Um, often it's, it's letters, sometimes it's phone calls, occasionally it's emails. Over half of the hate I get is from people who specifically identify themselves as Christians. That's crazy. Yes, like Bible verses in their social media profiles, biblical references to the whore of Babylon and Jezebel and the letters they send me. And, and so I, when, when he said that to me, when the dean said that to me, I said, I hear you. I know exactly what you're talking about. The most discouraging thing I get is when this hate comes from other Christians. And sometimes, sometimes I try the soft answer to turn away the wrath. Sometimes I try to say, hey, I'm happy to talk with you, but our conversation has to reflect the fruits of the Spirit. There has to be patience, not impatience. There has to be um, kindness. There has to be love. Uh, and, and every single time it's met with a, how dare you be so arrogant? How dare you insult me by you know saying this after they just called me a string of names? And that just absolutely breaks my heart. And it makes me feel like, what do we even call Christianity today? Um, how, how are people not getting the message of, our lives transformed through Christ today. Um, how is it that people somehow think that what we believe is we've got this magic ticket to go to heaven, sort of like Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory. And in the meantime, we can just live out the deeds of the flesh in their full glory day by day, um, securing the knowledge that then we'll go to heaven with absolutely um, none of the good works that Christ has prepared for us in advance, having been walked in. Yeah. So then that kind of leads me to my next question is how do we communicate well with people in the Christian community who use faith in the Bible to dismiss these issues? Well, we have this uh, little YouTube series called Global Weirding, not warming, weirding. <laughs> and they are over 35 really short videos that answer people's commonly asked questions. So five or six minute videos about how do we know it isn't a natural cycle and is climate change affecting hurricanes? And is it too late? And I'm just one person. What can I do? But what fascinates me is that our most viewed episode is what does the Bible say about climate change? That is really interesting. That's the one everybody is watching. And this is not a Christian series. It's a secular series. It just fascinates me that that's what everybody wants to know. And when you look into it, it turns out there are no no theological objections to climate change. I mean, the number one objection people have is, you know, God is in control. So by saying that humans can affect this planet, you're challenging the sovereignty of God. Well, in Genesis 1, it says God's given us responsibility over every living thing on this planet. In Genesis 2, it talks about our, resp our responsibility to protect, to guard, to steward the garden. In Revelation, it talks about how God will destroy those who destroy the earth. So, <laughs> so there's plenty of examples of human agency in the Bible, of God giving us responsibility. And, you know, if you truly believe humans can't affect something as big as our Earth's climate, then that means that you don't believe in nuclear bombs either, because you let off enough of those, and that would certainly irrevocably alter the Earth's climate in the face of this planet. So there's no true theological objections to this, and that's what our video goes into. But, and this gets to your question— our faith is our connector. And to have constructive, positive conversations about an issue that's become increasingly acrimonious and politicized, again, not just in the U.S., but in Canada, too, beginning that conversation with something that we do truly agree on and share is the most powerful and positive way to start. And then connect the dots between what we already care about and why naturally that means that we do care about a changing climate because of who we already are. It's not that we're 
creating or instilling or demanding that people have a new set of values or change who they are. It's showing people that who you already are, the very person you are with what you believe and what you hold to be important is exactly who you need to be to not just care about the impacts of a changing climate on the poor and vulnerable of this world, but to actually be the first person in line demanding action on this, like William Wilberforce back in the days of slavery. It was his evangelical faith that drove him to the front of the line. And what fascinates me is there's a French historian, his name is Jean-Francois Mouhot, who is also an evangelical Christian. And he studied the language and the framing that people were using back in the day to defend slavery. And a lot of that framing was the same Christian-y sounding framing we hear today around climate change. Oh, you know, it's God's design. That's the way God set it up to be. It would be worse if we got rid of it than if we kept it. You know, God designed the white race to be superior. I mean, these are the things we're being said. And today we hear people saying, you know, fossil fuels are God's gift. God designed the world the way it is. When it gets bad enough, we can just push the eject button anyways, <laughs> as if, you know, as if that wouldn't leave millions of people suffering yeah. today. So it's really fascinating that there's this tension that we see going back through the ages, you know, and you can take it all the way back to the Crusades, where people use Christian-y window dressing to justify selfishness, greed, and um, me-firstism. Whereas if we truly take the Bible seriously, if we actually read it and, and believe what it says, we would be out at the front of the line advocating for change on these issues. So what I see myself doing when I talk to people is I'm not trying to change people's values. I'm not trying to change people's identity. I am trying to honor who people already are, to respect who they are, to appreciate and lift up who they already are. And as it says in the book of James, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to hold up the mirror because it says in James, you're like a man who looked in the mirror and then went away and forgot who you are. I'm trying to hold up the mirror and say, this is who you are. This is who God has created you to be. And exactly who you are is the perfect person to care about this issue because God has put his love in your heart to pour out on all of those who need it. That is so good. Do you think then that the church has actually been slow to respond on climate? And if so, why do you think that would be? Yes and no. Um, the World Evangelical Alliance that represents 600 million of us around the world, yeah. they're really out on the forefront on this. Um, Bishop, Bishop Ephraim Tendero, who has been the secretary general for a number of years, he was an official delegate for his country, which is the Philippines, to the Paris Climate Conference. Um, in 2011, the National Association of Evangelicals published in the U.S. published a report called Loving the Least of These that directly connected the dots between poverty, suffering and the impacts of a changing climate. And that was, you know, that was four years before the Pope wrote his encyclical, which was all about the same topic. Yeah. So, so a number of churches and organizations, Christian organizations, have really been out at the forefront of this. And a lot of them are relief and development organizations like World Vision, for example, because they work in countries where they're seeing the impacts with their eyes and they understand how it's exacerbating the suffering that people are experiencing. There's even organizations like... Um, the Evangelical Environmental Network, EEN. They have the EEN Moms Group that has a lot of material and curriculum for looking at this issue through the lens of parents and kids. There's also Young Evangelicals for Climate Action. They have 20,000 members across the United States, and I'm not sure if they have members in Canada yet, but they absolutely should. <laughs> um, and then the Canadian Baptist Mission is also very engaged on this. And in Canada, we have a wonderful group called Arasha Canada, that's an A and then an R-O-C-H-A. It's Portuguese for the rock, um, Arasha. And they do amazing work. They have um, work that they do in Hamilton and British Columbia. And then they also work around the world in Lebanon and the UK and Portugal. And they work with restoration and conservation and investing in people's lives in the local community to improve the quality of their water, their air, their soil, um, and their ecosystems. So there's a lot of organizations that really do take a faith-based approach. but for many, many organizations, we are still back where I was when I first took that class on climate science. We're back where we sort of mentally lump climate change as, oh, that's just one of those environmental issues. And of course, we should care about environmental issues, and we probably do. But that's not really central to our core mission, which is preaching the gospel. Um, now, our missions have really undergone a revolution in recent decades from, you know, preaching the gospel only to recognizing that if somebody is starving, 
if somebody cannot, does not have water to drink, if they do not have food to eat, if they do not have a safe place to live, if they are worrying about the safety of their family or their children, you can't just hand them a Bible and say, God bless you. You yeah. have to meet their physical needs. And it even talks about this in a Bible. You know, if, if, if somebody's hungry, you're going to hand them a stone. Um, so we recognized in mission work that we have to care for people's physical needs. And by doing so, we are showing them the love of God. We're not preaching the love of God to them with our voices. We are actually tangibly demonstrating the love of God to them. Well, climate change is that same issue because the only reason we care is because it's making these things worse. So caring about climate change today truly is a faithful and genuine expression of God's love. And if we take that perspective, we understand how it integrates much more into our core mission. It's not just to kind of side that's just an environmental issue. It's actually part of loving each other today. Yeah. It's really interesting that you say that and list all of those different organizations and things that are doing really great things in the church community. Because I don't necessarily see that in the church community that I am a part of. And it's just interesting to me how the community that you're a part of can determine what you see and what you hear and, and what you um, are passionate about. So thank you for sharing that because that's encouraging to me that there are people that are actually doing stuff. Yes, yes, there absolutely are. So then where we live, Southern Ontario, the effects of climate change don't seem to be as obvious. Um, my husband and I talk about this a lot in that we're some of the major contributors, and yet we have no idea because we don't see it. What are some things that affect us, perhaps without us realizing it? Yes. So I was just up in Alaska last week where many people there, uh, many Christians as well as some non, shared with me their grief. Because everywhere you look, if you live up in the Northwest Territories, the Yukon, um, Nunavut, Alaska, you can see with your eyes the evidence of change when you just look. And so there are just daily reminders for them on how snowpack is shrinking, glaciers are retreating, the sea ice is coming later in the year. This year, Alaska, the Bering Sea was free of sea ice for the first time in recorded history. How the salmon are being affected, how their traditional diets are being affected for Native peoples, um, how how they're seeing it just surrounding them. and And sometimes they just are overwhelmed with the grief and the loss of the beauty of God's creation that they have sort of taken for granted over their lifetime. And now they see it disappearing before their eyes. Uh, It's just so powerful to hear their stories and to hear somebody say in, in Juneau, for example, in Alaska, that there's this range of mountains on the horizon that you can see whenever you're on the east side of town. That's just the first thing you see when you, when you lift up your eyes and just look. And the top of those mountains have been snow covered as long as there's been humans living in that place. And for the last three years now, those mountains have been free of snow. And so humans are looking at the tops of those mountains for the very first time. And just that daily reminder um, for many people is just devastating. Um, But then we, you know, we living in Southern Ontario, we may say, well, that's fine. But you know, what's happening to us? Well, we are actually seeing these impacts too. In fact, um, now that I come back to Ontario several times a year rather than living there full, full, full time, I actually see these things. I see species. I see birds that I never saw growing up. Never. Um, I know that our heavy rainfall events are increasing significantly because warmer air holds more water vapor. And so the warmer it gets, the more water vapor there is for our storms to sweep up and dump on us. So we have seen some really crazy rainstorms in Toronto and the surrounding area that are the direct result of this kind of loading of the atmosphere with water vapor. We're also seeing a lot hotter summers. I mean, this summer and last summer especially, there's just record-breaking heat waves where people are like, we don't even have air conditioning. How can we cope with this heat? Yeah. Um, We're also seeing some snow-free winters. I mean, there's been some winters when, depending on where we live, we're not seeing much snow at all, if any. And then, you know, our variability is increasing. So then we get these really snowy winters, and then we see no no winters at all. Um, And then uh, south of where we live, of course, in Buffalo, they get a lot of lake effect snow. And ironically, their lake effect snow has been increasing over the last 50 years because they get lake effect snow when Lake Erie is not covered with ice, but it's still cold enough to snow. So as it gets warmer, the number of days when the lake is not covered with ice, but it is warm enough to snow or cold enough to snow have been increasing. So they've been seeing more lake effect snow as a result of a warming world. So um, invasive species, summer heat, more frequent extreme precipitation, um, a shift in, in what we see as native species. And especially in downtown Toronto, the hotter it gets, the worse our air quality gets because 
the chemical reactions that create the pollutants that are dangerous for us to breathe, they happen faster when it's hotter. So we are experiencing these events in the places where we live. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like to share a story from Halifax too, if that's okay. Please do. So last October, I was invited to give the keynote address at the big fundraising banquet for a woman and children's shelter in Halifax. It's called Adsum, and they work with women and children who are homeless, um, who are out of work, who are kind of, you know, who need a hand up. They provide emergency shelter, um, long-term housing, and a lot of assistance with mental health, with career coaching, and all of those practical resources. So, um, I know because of my studies that women and children are more vulnerable to the impacts of a changing climate. And when disaster happens, the burdens fall disproportionately on women and children. And the, the lower we are down the socioeconomic ladder, both here in Canada as well as in developing countries, the, the greater that burden is. So I had already planned to talk about that. But then I got there and the executive director, Sherry, um, took me around to all of their different facilities and sites. And as she took me around that day, she shared stories about how the, the heat wave that they had had the previous summer was so devastating that their emergency shelters were overwhelmed with homeless people who had to get indoors. How the incredibly heavy rains that they had experienced and uh, hurricanes now are making it all the way up the coast with greater frequency. We've, we've always had her, the occasional hurricane that made it up to the Maritimes, but hurricanes are fed by warm ocean water. And the warmer the ocean, the further north the hurricanes can go. So mm-hmm. Hurricane Dorian, when it hit Halifax just a little while ago, it was a category two when it hit Halifax. And so I was thinking of Sherry and Addison when that happened. So she shared with me how when, when the city floods, um, you know, there's a lot more people who need emergency shelter and the public transport routes are disrupted so the buses can't run. So right. people can't make it to their jobs. They can't make it to their health appointments, their doctor appointments, their counseling appointments. So there's all of this kind of, you know, falling domino effect of these extreme events on the welfare of women and children living in Halifax in our country who are already on the edge, who are struggling to, you know, uh, climb back up. And, and these events just push them right back down. So I changed my talk and I added all of that into it that night to show them, you know, what's happening in Halifax, that extreme heat's getting worse, heavy rainfall events are getting worse, hurricanes are coming up the coast more and more as the ocean warms. And just before I went on stage to talk, their main sponsor, which was um, Canadian Tire, came up and shook my hand and welcomed me. But you could see that they were thinking, who on earth invited a climate scientist to speak to us? This this has nothing to do with what we're about, which is helping people. You know, why is she here? But I talked all about what I had seen, how climate is changing, how that affects the mission of ADSIM in particular, how they don't have the resources to help people when these disasters happen because they're already kind of at the edge of their limit. And these disasters are just pushing them over the edge in terms of their capacity and what they can cope with. And how because you care about women and children in Halifax, you already care about climate change. You just didn't realize it. And we need to look forward and develop robust, resilient, strong solutions to continue to help people because even more people are being affected in the future as these changes continue. So at the end, the Canadian Tire sponsor was the first person up on the platform. And he grabbed my hand and he shook it up and down enthusiastically, <laughs> which was a total change from, you know, the first, you know, formal handshake. And he said, I get it. That was the best talk we've ever had. I totally understand now how climate change affects what we do. It is so important. Thank you so much. And it's like, yes, that's it. You get it. So no matter who we are and who we care about, where we live in Canada, we're already being affected. We just haven't connected the dots. Yeah, that's so valuable to know because we often don't see how this affects that and the cause of what we do, how it affects real people here and now. Thank you for sharing that story because that touches me too because I care about the people here and now that need, need us. So then how can we create more awareness about the climate crisis? Because like me, just as a not a climate scientist or anybody with a huge voice as of yet, I mean, we have this podcast, which is helping a bit, but what can I do? What can I help to reduce my impact on the environment? Well, for a long time, when I first started telling people about climate change, I would get this question, you know, what can I do? And I was a little bit stymied because as a scientist, what we do is we diagnose the problem. 
So we can tell you exactly why it's happening, um, exactly what's responsible, and it is, you know, our emissions of heat trapping gases, primarily from digging up and burning fossil fuels, and then also a quarter of the problem comes from land use change, including deforestation and agriculture and animal agriculture, because they produce a lot of heat trapping gases too, out both the front and the rear end. <laughs> uh, so we can tell you, you know, why it's happening. We can tell you what's happening how much extreme heat and heavy precipitation is increasing in um, southern Ontario or how much greater area is being burned by wildfires out west or how fast the uh, permafrost is thawing up in the Arctic or the sea ice is disappearing. But we scientists don't do solutions. That's not what we do. No. So, yeah. so when I was first asked about it, I was very stymied. You know, the traditional answers, change a light bulb and recycle, just don't seem to really fit the bill. We instinctively recognize this disconnect between this giant challenge facing the entire planet and changing a light bulb is not really going to fix it. So um, I started doing some digging because I want to answer this question for myself too, right? I mean, I'd, I'd already changed light bulbs and I recycled, yeah. so <laughs> what more was there to do? So I went to uh, this really interesting site called the Yale Climate Opinion Maps. And they have these maps in detail for the U.S., but they also have some of these for Canada. So again, it's called Yale Climate Opinion Maps, where they ask people questions across the country, and they map the results by riding. Oh, wow. So you, yes, so you can connect directly to the riding that you're in and to people's opinion. So what I noticed in the U.S. was that when they asked people, do you think global warming is happening? Um, just about everybody said yes. So they use orange for yes and blue for no. And, you know, they, you know, different shades like light orange, medium orange, dark orange. So almost the entire country is dark orange. Yes, global warming is happening. And then they said, um, do you think it affects plants and animals? Do you think it affects future generations? Yes, yes, yes. Do you think it affects people in developing countries? Uh, probably yes. It was not quite as orange, but, you know, by and large, yes. Um, do you think it affects people in the United States? Again, by and large, yes. A little bit, a little bit of you know, white or a tiny bit of light blue in some areas, but mostly yes. And then they asked people, do you think it affects you, not other people in, in your country, but you? The map went dark blue. Wow. Dark blue. And then they asked the darkest blue question, <laughs> which is, do you ever talk about it? Oh, wow. The answer was no. Nobody ever talks about it. So you can connect the dots here, right? Yeah. If we, if we never talk about it, why would we care? Why would we understand how it matters to us? And if we don't care about it, why would we ever want to fix it or support people who do, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so when um, the TED organization came to me last year and said, are you, you know, would you be interested in doing a TED Talk? I said, Sure. I would love to do a TED Talk on what I have finally figured out is the answer to the question, what can I do? <laughs> the answer is the most important thing anybody can do is talk about it. That is the single most important thing we can do. Because, and, and I don't mean talking about all the science. So, you know, if people are like, well, I'm not a scientist. No, I'm not talking about talking about the science. I'm talking about talking about why it matters to us in the places where we live. And we have a global weirding episode specifically on Canada that you can kind of go through and get some tips if you want to know what's happening in the places where you live. Also, frankly, just read the headlines. There are stories all the time in the news um, about what's happening in the places where we live. Um, I also have an essay I wrote for Chatelaine magazine in the May 2019 issue that is online that talks about how to talk about climate change, how to have constructive conversations, and that has more examples in it too. Um, again, that's, that's Chatelaine. Uh, so talk about how it matters to us and then talk about positive, constructive solutions where we can talk about what we're doing ourselves, you know, not just light bulbs and recycling, but reducing food waste, for example. If food waste were its own country, it would be number three in terms of global heat trapping gas emissions after China and the U.S., above the whole country of Canada. Wow. We throw out a third of the food that we produce, and that's just a waste, and it could be used to feed other people. The idea of, you know, simple things like, you know, hanging our clothes out and uh, looking into buying a used plug-in car, because actually used electric cars and hybrids are not that much more expensive. But then 
joining a group that amplifies our voice. And that's why it's so important to recognize that there are so many amazing Christian groups like Arasha around that we can join. Um, Voting, talking to our MPs or MPPs and saying, hey, I really care about this issue. What's your position on it? And I often do that. I still vote in my own writing in Etobicoke. And I reach out and I say, hey, I just want to let you know I'm a climate scientist. I really care about how this is affecting us. What are you, you know, what are you thinking about this? What do you think of your party's position? And I particularly enjoy reaching out to our conservative um, candidates because I think that they have a really important role to play in pushing for changes and for actions that are consistent with a conservative perspective, as well as, you know, the liberals, the NDPs, and obviously the Green Party. So in my TED Talk, rather than talk again about light bulbs and recycling, I talked about how having these conversations where we connect the dots between things we already care about and how a changing climate is affecting them and what we can do to fix it is the single most important thing that every single person can do. Yeah, and I've really noticed how well you do that with the various talks that my husband and I have watched you give and the essays and articles that you've written. You are very skilled at um, being able to match people's values with uh, climate and what they can do and and I really appreciate that. And it really inspires me to be do that as well for people. So thank you. So as we bring this to a close, my final question is, what is one of the hardest things for you to reconcile with regarding the climate crisis? But then what is something that also gives you hope for the future? Those are two great questions to end with. <laughs> so when people often ask me, and in fact, the most frequent question I think I've gotten over the last few years is what gives you hope? And the answer is not the science. When I look at the science, it seems like almost every new study that comes out shows that climate is changing faster or to a greater extent than we thought, or it's affecting us in new ways that we didn't realize before. And the politics doesn't give me any hope either. Um, And what's one of the hardest things for me to reconcile is what we actually talked about a few questions ago, where you have these people, these thought leaders who stand up and who proclaim that, oh, we're Christians. Oh, I believe in God. And then in the very next sentence, they're like, and for that reason, we would never want to do anything that helps poor people or that, you know, fixes climate change or that actually has, you know, has compassion for immigrants or anything like that. And so my greatest frustration is the frustration that I heard that man voice to me. And that is, I just asked God, God, how are you working in these people's lives? Show me evidence that, that you are working um, in their lives. And sometimes the answer kind of comes back that that's what free will is. That's why God did not invent us as a race of robots or puppets, but he gave us the ability to make bad choices as well as good. And, and unfortunately, some people are making bad choices in his name. And that is um, breaking his heart even more than it's, it breaks mine. Uh, so that that's one of the greatest Um, challenges I have in reconciling what I see in the world. And that applies, you know, kind of across the board, not just to the climate issue, but it's all part of this whole issue of what does it really mean to love our neighbor and to walk in love and to care for others, to love others as Christ loved us first. But paradoxically, that's also where the hope comes from, because I see hope, first of all, in what people are doing. And when I look for it, because hope is not a passive emotion, you can't wait for it to just come find you. You have to go out and look for it. When I go out and look for it, when I have conversations with people, when I ask people questions, I hear that hope coming back to me. I hear um, stories like the older retired man in a um, smallish town in England, about 150,000 people, who he listened to my TED Talk back in December about talking about climate change and how it's so important. And so when I was speaking in the UK in May, um, I, whenever I do travel, I always group my travel together to do a lot of different events in the same place to minimize the carbon footprint, because that's something I do. That's a big part of my own personal carbon footprint. Um, and, and I also offset my travel using climate stewards, which is a Christian organization that invests in eight different developing countries in the world, um, helping to invest in clean cook stove projects, reforestation, sustainable agriculture, um, and the absorption of carbon through doing so. Uh, so I was, I was speaking in the UK and this man came up to me afterwards and he said, I watched your Ted talk. And because of that, we decided we were going to have climate conversations in my small town. And I said, Oh, that's great. And he said, we've even kept a list of them. Would you like to see the list? And I said, sure. I would love to see the list. So he, he reaches in his bag and I expect him to pull out a list of, you know, maybe 50 or a hundred conversations that they've had since December. 
he pulls out a sheaf of papers. He says, here are the 10,000 conversations we have had. Wow. And as a result of these 10,000 conversations, our city has decided to declare a climate emergency. Wow. And I'm just like, oh my goodness. <laughs> That's just right there. Um, it's just enough to sort of, you know, justify everything that we've, we've done. So when I hear stories, and a lot of the positive stories I hear come from other Christians, that gives me hope because I see evidence that God is working despite the horrible headlines we read every day in the news, which is designed to make us feel hopeful, hopeless and fearful. That's what it does on purpose to make us click on the headlines often. In spite of that, there is hope in the world. And so engaging with people, interacting with people, joining an organization that helps us to connect with like-minded people and raise our voices, acting ourselves gives us that sense of hope. But ultimately, as Christians, we have one more thing. We have the fact that the Bible actually tells us where hope comes from. It, it gives us a genealogy of hope, so to speak. And this is in the book of Romans, where it talks about, and it begins with, suffering. It says that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope that will not disappoint, because that hope is not placed in people, in things, in politics, in things of this world. That hope that we have is placed in God, who is immutable, unchanging, and who will never, never disappoint. So that ultimately is where our hope comes from. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Catherine. As we close, I just have one quote that you uh, said in your essay on how to talk about climate change so people will listen. It said, to care about climate change, all you really have to be is a human living on the planet Earth. Someone who cares about the health and the welfare of our family, our community, and especially those less fortunate than us. So thank you for helping us to see how climate change affects us and those around us and what we can do to affect change. So thank you. Thank you. What a timely and valuable conversation with Catherine. She definitely knows what she's talking about. I appreciate all of the effort and time she has put into helping others see the reality of climate change while still valuing her faith in the people she is communicating with. Her confidence and gracious spirit gives me hope that no topic is too difficult to talk about. And just to reiterate, we may not always share the same viewpoints or opinions as our guests, but our desire is for people to feel safe to join us at the table and on this journey of life together. I may not come to the same conclusions or in the same way as Catherine, and you may not either, but at least we can come together and bridge the divide with grace. To learn more about global warming and the climate crisis, you can visit Catherine's website at www.catherinehayhoe.com. She has many posts, articles, blogs, links to further information. You can watch her TED Talk and find her social media accounts. Or you can also visit the Global Weirding website where you can find short, informative videos on frequently asked questions. That's www.globalweirding.com. For future speaking engagements, these can also be found on Catherine's website. But for those of us living in southern Ontario, she will be speaking at the Meeting House on December 29th and the Power to Change Conference on December 30th. If you have any questions or comments, please contact us at activelistening.life at gmail.com or leave a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.